Uh, so we are in this series on uh, becoming peacemakers, the call of peacemaking. Um, and I want to remind us at the outset of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, this, this very powerful call that he made. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And uh, last week when we started this series, we talked about sort of what Jesus meant by that. Um, it meant that if you do the costly, sacrificial work of making peace in your life, in the community, uh, you are exhibiting a family trait of God. You are resembling your heavenly Father. And so uh, this is a really um, uh, incredible call that has been put in front of us. And we're, we're unfolding in this three-week series what this looks like to step into this call uh, of peacemaking. And today, uh, we are going to talk about peacemaking and prejudice. Um, prejudice, when we use that word, we often think of racism, and, and certainly that is part of it. Uh, but prejudice is, is a bigger concept than that. Um, it includes more than just racism. So I want to give us kind of a definition of what prejudice is. The definition of prejudice is this, a preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or actual experience. It's a preconceived opinion that's not based on reason or actual experience. It's holding a view about a person or especially a group that you're not a part of, and your view of them is both negative and incorrect. And it's never positive. Prejudice is never, it's not like there's some group you're not a part of and you're like, I think they're amazing, and then you find out they're not, and you're like, oh, I guess I was wrong. That's not how prejudice works. It's always negative. It's always incorrect. Um, it's prejudging someone or a group without actually knowing them. And when we say it like that, it seems pretty illogical. It's like, well, why would we do that? That doesn't make sense. You know, why would I have a bad view of someone I've never met or I don't know? But however illogical it might sound when we talk about prejudice in theory, it is effortless for us as humans to be prejudicial towards others. Um, I was thinking back on my life about, you know, when's the first time in my life I can remember being prejudicial towards someone? And um, this is a fairly low voltage example, but I remember it clearly. Um, I was in junior high and I was playing sports for my school and I was on different sports teams. And I remember like hearing things about the other schools that we were going to be competing against. Like, oh man, the, everyone at that school is like super tough or, you know, they're just a bunch of bookworms at that school because they blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, just those kinds of things that you hear. And um, I would hear them and believe them and repeat that stuff. It's like I just was part of that. And uh, I'd never been to those schools. I knew zero people at those schools. And uh, yet I was believing these kind of false conclusions. And not only that, I kind of remember having the feeling of thinking like everybody at that school is just an embodiment of my stereotype. They're all just little carbon copies of the stereotype I have of that school. Now, I think that's a good example of what prejudice is and how it works. But let's be honest, it's a fairly innocent example. For most people who experience prejudice, it is much, much uglier than that, especially um, I'm thinking of kids who grow up in poor communities, especially communities of color who grow up with this, who experience you know, degrading names, denial of opportunities, all manners of insult and injustice, even violence. I mean, prejudice is one of the foulest expressions 
of sin in our world and in our lives. Um, and the seeds of prejudice, they spring up rapidly. They're very resilient. I mean, they are just, they're weeds of prejudice all over our world. And if you look through history, that is absolutely the case. I mean, you can just go back and look at, you know, the Crusades, you know, European nations subjugating Africans and, and those in um, the Americas when they came over here, um, Catholics versus Protestants, East versus West, the slave trade, segregation, terrorism, apartheid, anti-Semitism, sexism. I mean, it's all born out of prejudice. And sometimes we Christians are viewed with prejudice as well. That's been happening since the beginning of the church. And that can be very painful and difficult as well. And if we're honest, if we're really willing to be honest about the church, about what our voice has been historically, there have been moments when the church has... Uh, participated in this, of creating and perpetuating prejudice. I'm thinking especially of the many pro-slavery pulpits in churches throughout America before the Civil War. Um, And then today, if we're not careful, we Christians, we can even, if we allow prejudice to be a part of our life and our worldview, we can find ourselves demonizing people that we don't know who we claim to want to reach with the gospel. This is a hard truth to face. It really is. And I do think that's a key problem of prejudice is uh, those of us who have prejudice often don't think that we do. It's, It's just sort of lurking in there. Sometimes it's kind of blatant and we might know it um, or glimpse it sometimes. Sometimes it's more latent. It's sort of, you know, kind of hiding under the surface. Um, But as followers of Christ, if we're going to rise to this call of peacemaking that Jesus put down and the rest of the New Testament writers threw down for us, we have to be willing to see the roots of prejudice in our own life and rip those roots out. And we have to look for ways in the community where we as believers can combat this and look for ways to rid our community of it. Because prejudice and division is alive and well today. I mean, You know, you can't go a day without seeing this, you know, immigrants versus citizens, police versus communities of color, rich versus poor, liberal versus conservative, Islam versus the West, this theological view versus this theological view. Our world is overgrown with prejudice. And so was the New Testament world. The world of Jesus, the world in which the early church was born was full of prejudice. And we're going to look at a passage in the New Testament today that speaks exactly to this what it means for ourselves as individuals, and what it means for us as a church as we engage in our community. Uh, But before I get into it, before we jump into the text itself, I just want to encourage you about something. When thinking about prejudice, when thinking about this issue, it's it's highly sensitive. Um, I want to encourage you uh, not to just think about them, whoever the them is, those other people. It's very easy to think that way about them. A, a, a group of people that's a part of a, a social or racial or uh, cultural or financial or political or spiritual group that you're not a part of, and just to focus kind of on what they should do. Well, they need to change in this way. If they only came to the table, we could improve relations. But I want to ask you today, in this moment, not to think about them or what they should do, but to focus instead on yourself and what you can do. What can you do to be a peacemaker, to be a healing voice, to address prejudice 
in our community, and perhaps in your own heart. And you might think to yourself, well, you know, I'm not really the cause of the fractures in our community. I'm not, it's not really my fault. I, it's not my responsibility to fix it. Um, I'm going to confess I felt that way for a long time. Uh, but a number of years ago, I, I heard something at a conference that really convicted me about this. Um, it was a, a speaker who happens to be a pastor in the D.C. area, and he was talking about kind of divisions in the community, racial tensions, things that their church was dealing with. And, and he said, you know, the divisions in the community, the fractures in our, in our country, like they may not be your fault, but they are your problem. And that really convicted me of like, I had really been living in this mindset of, is it my fault? No, then I don't really have to do anything about it. But it is a problem. And Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. And what does it look like to step into that? And so that's what uh, we're going to explore together today. What it looks like to build bridges, even when you feel you shouldn't have to. Let me pray before we get into the text. Lord Jesus, this is um, a hard subject. It's hard to evaluate ourselves accurately on this. And we confess that it's easy to live in a place of just blaming others or thinking this is somebody else's problem. And we don't want to think that way, Lord. We want to be changed in this area. So Holy Spirit, would you break down the barriers in our minds and hearts on this issue? And help us to leave with your heart. We trust that you're going to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Uh, open to Ephesians 2. Open up to Ephesians 2. If you're unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture, uh, Ephesians is a letter in the New Testament. It's right after uh, Galatians. And um, we have Bibles on the table, so feel free to grab one of those if you want to highlight and take notes. Uh, You can keep that Bible if you don't own one, though we will put the scripture on the screens as we always do. Ephesians chapter 2. Before we get into it, I want to paint a little bit of a picture of what's happening in this passage because Paul was speaking into a very painful and fractured situation. And so I want to paint that backdrop so that we can appreciate the fullness and richness of what he's saying. So Paul's writing Ephesians in the first century to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. Now, uh, you know, sometimes when we think about the world of the Bible, it's kind of like, well, those are just a bunch of old little villages, and we kind of think of them all the same. Ephesus was not like that. Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, over 250,000 people. It was a massive city for the ancient world. Um, It was wealthy. It was cosmopolitan. It was made up mostly of Gentiles, which means people, uh, non-Jews, anybody who wasn't Jewish was Gentile. And uh, Ephesus was a center of worship for the Greek goddess Artemis. Okay, yeah, here's where Ephesus is located, on the western coast of modern Turkey. Uh, You can go visit the ruins of Ephesus today. Um, They're amazing, one of the best preserved Roman era cities in the world. Um, And so that's where Ephesus was located, and it was a center of worship for the Greek goddess Artemis. And this was her temple that was located in Ephesus. Ephesus people came from all over the Roman world to worship her there. This was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this temple. It's probably the largest enclosed structure in the Roman world. It's massive. And, in, and also, Ephesus was um, a center of emperor worship. So they believed Caesar was a god, and there was a huge emperor worship thing happening in Ephesus. And in this huge city, 
this little community of Christians begins to flourish. And that community, being Ephesus, was mostly, Christ, mostly Gentiles in that church, but there were some Christians in that church who were from a Jewish background. And they were mixing in ways in the church that they did not in the broader culture. And so that brought inside the church, it brought to the surface these generational prejudices between Jews and Gentiles because they were right there in community with each other. The Jews were monotheistic in their background. They believed in the Bible of the Old Testament. The Gentiles came from a polytheistic pagan background. They dressed differently. They ate different food. They spoke differently. They were often of different ethnicities. They have differing levels of loyalty to Rome. And there was deep distrust between Jews and Gentiles because the Gentiles had ruled over the Jews as oppressors for generations. So to the Jewish people, the Gentiles are their overlords, the people holding them down. The Gentiles held the political, the military, the social power, and they had abused it. But within the church, the Jews kind of had the religious power. I mean, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah after all, and they were willing to wield that power within the church. And so within the church, the Jewish Christians had kind of a seniority or like a religious clout. The Gentiles had the social and political power outside the church. So here's the thing. Both Jews and Gentiles felt like outsiders with each other. And they both could accuse each other of being hateful. And so the first century church is saturated with prejudice. It is broken. There are cracks showing in the body of Christ over this issue. And Ephesians 2, when Paul writes this letter to these Ephesian Christians, he's speaking into this, this exact matter. And Paul's words to them are words for us. And Jesus changes the game. We're going to see that in what Paul says. So let's start at the beginning of Ephesians 2. Paul, um, I'm going I'm to kind of read a selection of the first nine verses. I'm going to skip a few verses here, uh, but we'll have it that way up on the screen. Paul starts about speaking about our life before Jesus, life without Christ. He says this, as for you, he's talking about Gentile Christians in Ephesus, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse four, but because of his, that's Jesus, because of Christ's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. Verse 8, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So what's Paul doing here? He's about to step into the, the issue of prejudice and Jew and Gentile relations. But you know where he starts? He starts by giving them a gospel lens over the whole issue. You were spiritually dead. And now because of Jesus, you are alive because Jesus loves you. He gave you his grace. You did not earn your standing with God in any way. And this is the starting point, the backdrop for any discussion of prejudice that we would have and that Paul is about to have here. He's basically saying this, remember how God treated you. Remember how God treated you when you were distant and a sinner and at odds with him. Keep that in mind, Paul is saying. And now in verse 11, he starts to speak to the issue at hand. Verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves 
the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So he's saying this was the situation for Gentiles before Christ. They were not part of God's people, Israel. And look at the words he used. I would highlight these words if you're taking notes. Separate, excluded, foreigners. That last word foreigners in Greek is xenos. It's where we get xenophobia. Outsiders. The Gentiles were separate, excluded, foreigners. And as a result, they were, and I would highlight these these two phrases, without hope and without God. So the Gentiles were outsiders before Jesus. And Paul is telling us here, they were mocked for that. They were mocked by the insiders. Paul says, you know, you're called the uncircumcised. This is what what, uh, Jewish Christians were calling Gentile Christians. It was their little name for them to mock them and highlight their outsider status. We're God's people and you're not. We've got the history to prove it. That's what all that's about. This is not the attitude that God wanted his people Israel to have toward the Gentiles. In fact, if they had read their Old Testament carefully, they would have seen that God actually called Israel to be a light to the Gentiles and to draw them to the Lord. Look what Isaiah says, Isaiah 42. God says this, I, the Lord, have called you, that's Israel, in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Skip down a little bit to Isaiah 60, and it says this, Nations will come to your light, that's the Israelites, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Paul is arguing that the Jewish Christians forgot about all this. They forgot. They had overlooked the fact that God called them to reach the Gentiles with his love and his truth. And now in the first century church, the Jewish Christians weren't seeing Gentiles as people who need God as much as they do. They're just enemies. They're just someone else. They're other So Paul now is going to continue and describe how Jesus just shatters prejudice within the church. Get your highlighters ready. We're going to highlight a few things as I read through this. This is an incredibly rich passage, these next few verses. So he's been describing life before Jesus, how the Gentiles were outsiders. And then in verse 13, he says the best two words of this chapter, but now, highlight those two words, but now, In other words, the situation has changed. You are no longer defining your relationship by your historic prejudices. That is over. But now, he says, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. Highlight that. He himself is our peace. Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Highlight that, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, 
thus making peace. Highlight those two words, making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached, highlight this, peace to you who were far away, and, highlight this, peace to those who were near. For through him, that's Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Jesus is our peace, Paul says. Peace across cultural rifts like Jew and Gentile relationships in the first century is possible because of Jesus. He knocks down the dividing wall of hostility. I had you highlight that, the dividing wall of hostility. Most biblical scholars, they don't think Paul's just making that phrase up, that that's just rhetoric. There was actually a dividing wall in the temple, in the Jerusalem temple in the first century. Here's a picture of what it looked like. It was a huge structure with these big outer courts, and that middle part is kind of the temple proper. And I I put the arrows there. You might be able to see, it looks like a little fence that's kind of around the temple itself. And ancient writers wrote about this. And basically the way it worked is if you were a Gentile, because this is before Jesus, the temple's before Jesus. So before Jesus, the idea to get close to God meant you have to go to the temple. That's where God lives, is in the temple. That's where his presence resides. And if you were a Gentile and you wanted to go worship God, you could go anywhere in those big, spacious outer courts, but you can't go past that barrier unless you're Jewish. And ancient writers wrote about this barrier, but most interestingly, archaeologists actually found the warning signs that went on that wall from the first century. This is a picture of one of them. It was written in Greek because that's what everybody would have been able to understand. You know what that sign said? If you're an outsider, a Gentile, and you go across this barrier, you will have yourself to blame for your death that follows. So the Gentiles, if if you're not Jewish and you want to get close to God, you want to worship, you can only get so close. You are a spiritual second-class citizen. But in the church, Paul says, the dividing walls of hostility in our hearts are broken down. The painful prejudices of our world are meant to crumble in the church. That is what Jesus is talking about. That is what Paul is saying here. And peace, I don't know if you noticed this, was mentioned four times in this passage. Jesus is our peace. He's the maker of peace. And he preached peace to those who were far away. That's the Gentiles. And get this, Jesus preached peace to those who were near. So even the Jews who thought, like, we got it all sorted out where God's people were good, Jesus says, no, no. There is a peace you have yet to experience that you can only experience in me, and I preached it to you too. Because your need and the Gentiles' need is fundamentally the same, and it's me. Jesus completely changed the game. The last few verses give us the results of this. Verse 19, Paul writes, Consequently, he's talking to the Gentiles here, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the new temple, is the church, the body of Christ. 
And, and Paul is saying as a result of the cross, the Gentiles are no longer outsiders, foreigners, strangers, second-class citizens. Instead, I would highlight these two things. They're fellow citizens and members of God's household. And then he says, I love this phrase because it, it has multiple meanings. It says um, they're being built together. I would highlight that too in verse 22. They're being built together into this dwelling place of God. And that's important for a couple reasons. First of all, it's in the passive voice. You're being built. You're not building yourself. Jesus is building you into something. You are being built. You're not doing the building. And also, the second thing that I think is amazing about that passage is is Jesus is not just building the Gentiles alone and then building the Jews together over here. No, no, they're being built together together there is no separate but equal in the church jesus is building his church jew and gentile people of totally different cultural backgrounds together into his church breaking down those dividing walls jesus destroys those dividing walls he builds his people together into the church the body of christ of which he is the head and so this argument paul's been making in Ephesians 2, is that the centuries-old, deeply painful, entrenched, festering prejudice between Jew and Gentile is meant to be over because of Jesus. Jews and Gentiles are no longer a them to each other. Because of Jesus, they're now an us to each other. So that was what was happening then in the first century, and in many ways it's happening now still. Um, and so as we reflect on this, we reflect on our call to be peacemakers and this issue of prejudice. Um, I think we have kind of two temptations as we think about how to respond. Uh, the first temptation is this. We kind of think they need to change. Whoever they is, they need to change. That group of people that you feel at odds with for whatever reason, or you feel like maybe doesn't belong with Jesus, the temptation is to think it's up to them to come to the table. Maybe you've experienced some division with them or frustration. They've got to come to the table. Or maybe you talk about them a lot, but you never talk to them. They just need to get over themselves, acknowledge they're the problem, apologize. Here's a question. What if they never do that? Are you okay with the status quo of division being that way forever? If they never come to the table? To be a Christ-like peacemaker, we're seeing, we saw it last week, we see it here, is to stop thinking in terms of who is more to blame and begin the conversation. Work for peace. So I think that's one temptation, is just to think they need to change. I'd be willing to make peace if they would just admit it's all their fault. The second temptation is to think, I need to change. Now, why am I listing that as a temptation? Doesn't that sound right? The reason it's not right is we can't really change ourselves. We can't just, like, work hard, check all the right boxes, you know, just kind of think our way to being peacemakers and dropping prejudices and things like that. We can't bridge sensitive racial, social, cultural, political divides in our own strength. 
God has to reshape our hearts. And so I need to change is not the right answer. The right answer is actually I need Jesus to change me. Remember, he's the one who does the building. I need Jesus to change me on this topic of being a peacemaker, on the topic of prejudice. I need Jesus to transform me from the inside out. So I want to give you some suggestions and food for thought about this topic. Um, I would encourage you to begin praying and ask God to reveal what prejudices might exist in your own heart. Now, I'm not just speaking racially. I mean, there's all sorts of prejudice that you might have. Um, And ask the Lord to rid you of that, heal you there, and enable you to be a peacemaker and to point to him as the ultimate peacemaker. And if you're struggling to identify your own prejudices, and let's be honest, we all have them. If you're struggling to identify them, uh, I want to give you a little bit of a kind of a thought experiment to walk through that might, might give you an inclination if you have some. Um, so just kind of think about this for a second. How would you feel if someone you love dearly, a child, a parent, uh, a close friend, family member, something like that, someone you very close to, you love them deeply, if someone that you love decided to marry or be in some kind of relationship with someone with that education level who speaks that language, who has that skin color, who dresses that way, who has that political perspective, who is from that country, who lives in that part of town, who attends that kind of church, from that income level, or who made that mistake, who's a part of that group, whatever group you might be thinking of. How would you feel if someone you love chose to enter into a very meaningful long-term relationship with someone from one of those groups? Just think about that and ask God to speak to you into your heart and do that interior work So there's that internal side of it, of of asking the Lord to reveal and heal the prejudices in you. There's also the external side of it. How do you respond when you're on the receiving end of prejudice or someone you care about is? Or you witness something terrible or someone says something deeply offensive and you just see this awful thing and there's this desire to speak up or address it directly directly. we, we absolutely should. I mean, Jesus calls us to address the ills in our society, and when we see people being abused or taken advantage of, we absolutely should speak up. I think that a misconception of peacemaking is that you're sort of, you know, disengaged or kind of pacifist about things, but I hope you're seeing, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, actually what we've talked about with peacemaking is how proactive it is of having conversations. So when something offensive, deeply offensive happens to you, happens to someone you love, yes, we should speak up about it. We should address the issue directly. I believe that. But what we have to think about is the way that we do. Not if we should speak up, how we should speak up. The manner in which we confront this. If we just yell at people and just condemn them. They're a lost cause. I've written them off. I don't believe we are serving as the ambassadors of Christ that we're called to be. 
if you begin hating the haters in your heart, you're doing damage to yourself, actually, and you're not really making any progress toward peace or growth or healing or Christ-likeness. But it is very hard to hold back when we're offended or mistreated or somebody we love is when we witness this prejudice. But we can, we can confront it. We just have to think about what it looks like to do that in a Christ-like way. We got a little bit of that last week when we talked about being slow to speak, gentle, peaceable. It doesn't mean we don't speak. It just means think, pray about how to respond, choose words that are true, and really adopt the attitude we just saw Paul use in Ephesians 2, right? How did he start out? The gospel lens. Start out by remembering how Jesus viewed you when you were far from him and consumed with sin. He did not view you as a lost cause. But we just so easily view other people as lost causes. I believe if we are put in a position of needing to confront prejudice or racism or these, these terrible things that we encounter in our culture, um, we just have to, we have to ask God's help to do this with a lens of grace. And here's what that looks like. You don't view him as a lost cause. You don't think that you are just a better person. God loves you more. No, you, you think proactively to yourself, God loves this person as much as he loves me. And I'm deeply grieved that they think this. And I'm sad that they feel this way for them. And I hope to see them grow out of this in the same way that Jesus wanted me to grow out of the things that separated me from him. So you uh, confronting prejudice and racism and these ugly things in our communities it, with a lens of grace is to say you can see the way a person is, you can see the way they are, as something that, with Jesus' help, can one day be the way they were. And that you want to be part of that process, if possible. So being a peacemaker, I think, in part, means owning up to our own prejudices, identifying them, asking God to change those, and being willing to make peace or work for peace, or at least take steps towards peace, maybe with those who hold prejudices against us. It is not easy. And you cannot do it in your own strength. But the good news is, we don't have to. In calling us to peacemaking, Jesus has called us to humble ourselves and rely on him to make peace through us. And if we approach it with that heart, I believe he will soften our hardened hearts. I believe he will heal our wounded hearts. And I believe he will work through us to work for healing in our communities. And I believe in the process he'll bring glory to himself because it's the kind of work only he can do, this kind of peacemaking. It, it cannot happen in our own strength. History has proven it doesn't happen in our own strength. So we have to ask Jesus to do this in us and through us. Jesus is our peace, and that's something we can cling to 